Well, good morning, everyone. Thanks so much for being here at First Free Church. If you're new, my name is Adam. I'm one of the pastors, and I'm really glad you're here. I hope that you had a great time worshiping God together with the singing this morning. And we're gonna keep it going with studying God's word. So if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and open that to Acts chapter 13. That's where we're going to be today. Before we get into that, let me just give you a little bit of a picture of where we're going as a church for the next few months, just so you can kind of be aware of some key dates and things that are happening here. The first one is that next week is gonna be a special service for us. Of course, it is Mother's Day, but it's also our Worship Together service. This is something we did before the pandemic that was a lot of fun. We invited all the kids to be in here as a part of the service. Nursery will be open, but every, everyone else, all the kids are gonna be invited to be in here, and it's gonna be a, a, a service that will hopefully have something for everyone. So whether you're young or young at heart, you should be able to be a part of this and have fun and enjoy it. It'll be very different, but it'll be a lot of fun, I promise you. That's going to happen at 10 a.m. next week. Now, you can still come here earlier than that. If you want to come at 9, there'll be a pancake breakfast in the activity center. Then you can come over and join us at 10, where it'll be one service. Everybody in here, it's going to be a lot of fun. The week after that is May 21st. There's going to be a carnival after the second service. And this is a big thing we do every year. It's a ton of fun. This year, it's been expanded to include a lot of things that teenagers will probably enjoy and young adults will enjoy. So it's not just for kids. Would love for everyone to come and be a part of that on May 21st. It is gonna be focused around the idea of being back together. So if you have one of our cool back together t-shirts, please wear that in two weeks to the carnival. Would love to see you there May 21st and wear your t-shirt for that. Our fusion kids, fourth and fifth graders, have been working for a while now on building a replica of the tabernacle from the Old Testament. And that is, the culmination of that is gonna be a time where you can actually go through, they're gonna invite the whole church to see what they've been building down in Kid Connection. So they've been learning about the tabernacle. If you wanna see that, it's June 4th is the day that you will be able to go down and we'll, we'll let you know close to that time as well. But wanted you to know that that is coming. In July, July 2nd, we're going to start a new series that will be a temporary a break from the book of Acts. It's gonna be called The Verse That Changed Everything. And we're inviting a bunch of speakers, not only our own preaching team, but several outside speakers as well, to come and share with us the one verse in the Bible that has made the biggest difference in their life. And I have heard what everyone is working on and preparing. It's some great stuff. You are not going to want to miss it. We're inviting people like Dr. David Croto, who you heard from last year. Pastor Quentin Steef, who is a pastor of another EFCA church up in Iowa, he'll be here with us. Barrett Moore will be back to share. Brad Waz, Mike Shields, who spoke last year. We may also be able to get Dr. Isla Tassi, who is the leader of the missions movement that we partner with in Kenya. And then we'll, of course, have our own preaching team as a part of that as well. So it's going to be a whole, a whole series, about nine weeks, of every speaker talking about the verse that made the biggest difference in their life. It is going to be powerful. You are not going to want to miss that. And the reason why we're having this series with all these other speakers coming in is because I will actually be going on a sabbatical starting July 9th. So I'll kick things off July 2nd with our first message in that series. And then I have been here for almost six years now, and I am supposed to take a sabbatical after five years. So I'm going to take a sabbatical this summer. Uh, I'll be doing things with my family. I shared all about this on the Five Questions podcast. So if you listen to or watch the podcast, you know a little bit more information about what I will be doing and why. If you want to get that, go to efree.org slash back together and you'll find it there. But that is what's coming up. We have the series lined up. Our staff are all ready for this. So I'll take a, a sabbatical.
sabbatical with my family, and part of that sabbatical will actually be preparing and reloading for the next five years of ministry, including a new series we're going to start as soon as I get back called Created to Connect, God's Design for Intimacy and Gender. And so one of the things I'll be doing on my sabbatical while I'm not doing meetings and other things here and and preaching in the months of July and August is getting ready for a really crucial series that we're going to have talking about gender and intimacy and sexuality and same-sex attraction and transgenderism and lots of issues that are very important and relevant in our culture today, but we've got to handle them very, very carefully and very biblically. So I've actually been preparing for this for about a year and a half. And now we're at the point where we're ready to, uh, to have a whole series on this. So that is coming up in September. That's a look at the next few months for what we have here at the church. Lots of great things. I hope you'll be here with us for all of it. Don't forget the Worship Together service next week, the carnival after that, and it's going to be awesome. We are studying the book of Acts right now, though, and we'll, after, after those two series, we'll get back to Acts for a little while. So we're just going to break it up for a bit, keep things fresh, and then we'll come back to Acts, and at some point we will wrap up the book of Acts, I promise you. We'll get there eventually, but I hope you're enjoying this series. I have certainly loved it, and I've heard great feedback from a lot of you about it, and I know that some of you I see every week are carrying around the Acts journals, and I just wanted to let you know we still have a few more of those. If you'd like to purchase one, they're available in our library over here. Of course, you can get them online as well, just those Acts journals that have the scripture in them with a space for you to write the notes. Okay, let's dive into our passage for today. It's Acts chapter 13, and what I want to do is read this passage to you. And then we're going to pray, and then we're going to walk through it, but I'm not going to put Acts 13 on the screen again. So we're going to reference it frequently throughout the message. You'll want to have it open to your Bible in front of you so that you can see what we're talking about. Acts chapter 13, verse 1, says this. Among the prophets and teachers of the church at Antioch of Syria were Barnabas, Simeon, called the black man, Lucius from Cyrene, Menaean, the childhood companion of King Herod Antipas, and Saul. One day as these men were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, anoint Barnabas and Saul for the special work to which I have called them. So after more fasting and prayer, the men laid their hands on them and sent them on their way. So Barnabas and Saul were sent out by the Holy Spirit. They went down to the seaport of Seleucia and then sailed for the island of Cyprus. There in the town of Salamis, they went to the Jewish synagogues and preached the word of God. John Mark went with them as their assistant. Afterward, they traveled from town to town across the entire island until they finally reached Paphos, where they met a Jewish sorcerer, a false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He had attached himself to the governor, Sergius Paulus, who was an intelligent man. The governor invited Barnabas and Saul to visit him, for he wanted to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the sorcerer, as his name means in Greek, let me just pause there. Elymas is the same as Bar-Jesus. This is the Jewish sorcerer. Elymas, or the sorcerer, as his name means in Greek, that's what Elymas means, interfered and urged the governor to pay no attention to what Barnabas and Saul said. He was trying to keep the governor from believing. Saul, also known as Paul, was filled with the Holy Spirit, and he looked the sorcerer in the eye. Then he said, you son of the devil. Don't you love when Paul gets really angry? You son of the devil, full of every sort of deceit and fraud, an enemy of all that is good. Will you never stop perverting the true ways of the Lord? Watch now, for the Lord has laid his hand of punishment upon you, and you will be struck blind. 
you will not see the sunlight for some time. Instantly, mist and darkness came over the man's eyes, and he began groping around, begging for someone to take his hand and lead him. When the governor saw what had happened, he became a believer, for he was astonished at the teaching about the Lord. Let's pause right there and pray and ask God to bless our time in the word this morning. Father, we thank you so much for these words written down by Luke 2,000 years ago and preserved miraculously over a couple millennia so that we could have them today and learn what you did in this early church and the lessons that we can apply to our lives today. And God, I pray that you would help us to learn from it, Lord. Help us to be open to whatever you want to teach us. Maybe there's an aspect that we need to learn. Maybe there's something that we need to remove from our lives, a a distraction, something like that. Maybe we just need to be more aware of how you're at work in the world and be a part of it, Lord. Help us to do that today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you know, a lot of times I like to start off my messages with something fun and something interesting to get our brains kind of going and thinking to make sure we're all paying attention. And last week, Kevin had that video of the man in the mirror, which, or the man in the mirrored suit, man in the mirror is a different thing. The man in the mirrored suit, who, uh, that was just incredible. And there's no way I can top that, okay? So I wanna set your expectations relatively low here. But I did do something this week that I think will be kind of an interesting opener and will at least get you thinking in the right direction for what I'm gonna talk about today. I'm gonna show you an image, which is similar to the images that I looked at when I was a kid and thought were super fascinating, where you have to find something in it that's sort of hidden. It's a look and find image. I loved these when I was a kid. So I, I made, I'll tell you how I did it, but I made this this week. I want you to see if you can find the black panther in this image, okay? There's a black panther hidden in this picture. Go ahead and show it on the screen, and we'll give you a few seconds here to look at it. And when you see it, don't show them where it is yet, but when you see it, I want you to raise your hand. So tell me if you see the black panther in this image. And and Jackson, I appreciate you raising your hand, because that is technically true, even though you knew exactly where it was going into this. (laughs) You still get points. Good job. All right, Jessica sees it. Evelyn sees it. Anybody else? Okay, show them where the Black Panther is. Right there. This is a tricky one. I admit it. It's even harder in this room up on the screen. So let's give you another shot. I want you to look at this picture and tell me if you can see the panda. Who sees the panda? Raise your hand if you can see the panda. For some of you, it's right away. And others of you are like, what are they seeing that I don't see? Where is that? All right, a lot of you see it. Let's go ahead and show them where the panda is. It's there, but it's hard to see. Let me give you one more. Tell me where the rabbit is in this image. Where is the rabbit? Good, we got a couple people that see it. Anybody else? Raise your hand if you see the rabbit. Anybody see the rabbit? Yeah, all right, more and more are seeing it. Good, good. I don't know if you're telling the truth or not, but. Okay, show them where the rabbit is. There it is, a little tricky, a little tricky. Now, before I show you the next one, I have to explain how I made these. You know I've been having fun lately with AI-generated images, and that's where all these came from. This was me saying, give me a cool background, and then give me an animal, and then I go in Photoshop, and I put them together, and that's what you get. But it wasn't always perfect, and that was on me, because as I was trying to tell it to make me images of a desert, I accidentally messed up the spelling of one of the words, and I ended up with this. So that's dessert in the desert. And just a helpful tip for all of us is dessert is something you always want more of. Two S's in dessert. Desert is one S. So just keep that in mind. But why would I show you these things? Well, it's because we're going to talk about the kingdom of God today. 
And as I was thinking about the kingdom of God, it, it struck me that if you study the life of Jesus and the teachings of Jesus, you will see him over and over again talking about the kingdom. What is the kingdom of God like? Who are the types of people that are in the kingdom and will be in the kingdom? What do people in the kingdom do? It's all about the kingdom. And yet, as I think about my life today and our lives today, the kingdom is not exactly a present reality we think about all the time. It's something Jesus thought about all the time and talked about all the time. It's something he told his disciples an awful lot about. And yet, a lot of times, the kingdom is kind of like those objects hidden in that picture. It gets drowned out by all the noise. It's right there the whole time. It's right there in front of us, but we're not always attuned to it. And so we don't always spot what's happening with the kingdom in our lives today. It seems so distant, or it seems so past, or it seems so future, or it just seems so spiritual or biblical, and it doesn't seem like it's a part of my life today. And Acts 13 gives us kind of a blueprint for how God was expanding his kingdom in the early days of the church. And, and I want us to look at Acts 13 today and see it not just as a story about something that happened, which is true, but also as an example of God at work in the world and many different facets of God at work in the world as it relates to his kingdom and building his kingdom and how he's still doing that today. Now, it may not always look the same. I've said many times, Acts is a book of description, not prescription. The epistles, the letters from the apostles to the churches are filled with prescription. Do this, don't do this. Acts is a book of description. Here's what happened. And so we can't read Acts and say, well, it's gotta happen like that all the time now. Because it's not written that way. It's written as a book of history to tell us here is what happened. But the things that happened are examples for us. Acts is an example, not a recipe. And so we can look to it and see how was God at work and then compare that to how is God at work today. And we will see a lot of similarities. And I hope that you will see, wow, God is still at work today advancing his kingdom. And here is where I need to be a part of that. And maybe where I've been missing it because I've been so distracted by work and sports and family events, and hobbies, and shows, and all the things that fill my life, and overschedule my life, and I'm so busy, and I don't have time to be a part of this incredible thing that God is doing all around me, but I may not see it, because it gets lost in the noise. So that's what we're going to look at today, and we're going to do that by looking at seven different things we see about the kingdom's expansion, realities of the kingdom expansion, in this passage in the book of Acts. And the first one is that the kingdom is for everyone. The first point I want to make is the kingdom is for everyone. This is really cool. In Acts 13.1, Luke tells us what kinds of people were leaders in this church in Antioch. Now remember, Antioch is a large metropolitan city. There's probably at least half a million people that live here. It's the Rome of the East. It's a melting pot. People from all over the world have gathered here. And you know what? The church reflected that. The church reflected the people that were in the city. And Luke wants us to know, Luke could have just said, the leaders of the church in Antioch sent out Paul and Barnabas, but he didn't. He said, here are a few of the leaders of the church in Antioch, and here's their background. Here's where they came from. Here's what their nickname was, which tells us a little bit about these people. So he starts with Barnabas, and he doesn't give us a lot of information about Barnabas because he did back in chapter four. We know that Barnabas is a Jew from Cyprus. And then he moves on to tell us about Simeon. Simeon's nickname means the black man. So we have a pretty good guess that Simeon didn't look like any, anyone like me, right? He probably had black skin, darker skin, darker complexion. He was probably from Africa because his nickname probably told you something about that. So that's Simeon. Then there's Lucius, who's from Cyrene. Cyrene is modern day Libya. So Lucius is from Northern Africa. 
Then there's Menaean. And what we learn about Menaean doesn't have to do with his ethnicity. It has to do with his upbringing. He was a childhood companion of King Herod Antipas. Now, King Herod Antipas was the king that had John beheaded. King Herod Antipas was the king that was involved in the trials of Jesus. This is not a great dude. But back then, what would happen is you didn't want your royal princes and princesses to be raised out in the community at all, but you still wanted them to have friends and grow up with peers. And so they would be raised completely within the palace and the protection of the palace guard. But you would go find people, either the parents allowed you to take or uh, children that maybe needed fostering. And you would essentially kind of adopt them as a step brother into the palace where they would grow up as a companion. So King Herod Antipas was one, had this companion, Menaean, who was raised with him in the palace, kind of like a stepbrother. And how amazing is it that Menaean ends up being a follower of Jesus and a promoter of Jesus and a leader of the church in Antioch, where this guy that he grew up and knew very well was very anti-Christian. It's just an incredible thing. The last person that Luke mentions is Saul, and he doesn't give us any more information because, again, we already know Saul's background, a Jewish Pharisee and one who was a, a harsh persecutor of Christians, a killer of Christians, who then has this radical experience and, and becomes a follower of Jesus and is now a leader as well in this church in Antioch. But what this teaches us by Luke giving us all this background is that the background and ethnicity and upbringing and whatever people have been involved in in the past can be very diverse and different in the kingdom of God. And so the kingdom is for everyone. And so you have this church in Antioch where the community is, is such a melting pot of people and the leadership of that church looks like a melting pot of people. You've got a couple guys from Africa. You've got the, this other guy that was a Christian killer in the past. You've got this other guy that came from this royal background and, and knows the evil King Herod Antipas well. I mean, it's quite a, a montage of individuals that are not just a part of the kingdom, but leaders in the kingdom. And it's a, a beautiful thing. And it reminds us that we as followers of Jesus need to be accepting of whoever God is accepting of. If somebody repents and turns to Jesus, welcome to the family. Doesn't matter what your background is. Doesn't matter what you look like. I mean, Saul was the worst of the killers of Christians, the chief of sinners. And yet he's a part of this leadership team here. Now, I want to encourage us and call us to be accepting and welcoming and embracing of the beautiful diversity that God has created in this world. I also want to warn us and be careful about a secular religious principle. And yes, those two things do really do go together. The secularism is a religion. It's just a, has different objects of faith. A secular religious principle, which is you have to manufacture diversity. Right, So there's an idea that, well, we have to sort of create diversity for its own sake, that that's a good end in itself, and so we're going to make it happen where it doesn't necessarily happen already. And that's not necessarily a biblical principle to sort of force it to occur. There's all sorts of, of damaging, unintended consequences that happen with that that I, I won't go into here today. That's not what we see here. What we see here is the church in Antioch had a leadership team that represented its community. And the church in Jerusalem had a leadership team that consisted entirely of Jewish people. There was almost no diversity on the Jerusalem church leadership team. Why? Because it represented its community. And so that's a principle that, that church leaders often will go to and say, does your church reflect, does your church leadership reflect the diversity of the community that you are in? And that's very important to us. We need to remember as a church that when there are people that have different backgrounds from us or look differently than us, and I'm not just talking about the color of your skin. That's a, that's a minor thing in the sea of vast differences that everybody have. 
the reality is that the genetic difference uh, in skin color that actually makes the difference of skin color from like dark pigmentation to light pigmentation is different than the genetic difference in the shape of your nose and mine. Like there's more genetic difference involved in, in the shapes of our, of our noses, two people that might look very similar on the outside than of, of skin color. That's not the big deal. But all the diversity that God has in background and what you've been through and experiences, we need to be welcoming and accepting of those people as a part of the family of God. While at the same time, not trying to generate or, or create diversity that God hasn't presented in the community itself. And I think this is worth talking about because I did some research this week and I do this about every year actually. I look into what do the demographics of our community look like here? What does it look like in the 10 mile radius around our church, which is where most of our people come from? I know some of you come from longer distances and good for you. But, but if you look at the majority of the people in our church and where they actually live, what do those communities look like? Well, those communities still, again, this year I looked at the stats again, um, are, are by far vastly white populations. That's just the ethnic make, makeup of, of those people. The only group that, that has a significant register outside of that would be Asian background people. And we love having a lot of Chinese background believers and Indian background believers and others in our church. It is awesome. We, we, we love that. We absolutely love that. And we've had more in the last couple of years join our church. We think that's amazing. And I'm going to pull back the curtain a little bit to let you know about something that we have tried to do for the last five years, and it hasn't worked out yet, but I just want to let you know. For the last five years, we have gone, wow, the largest percentage of our church, of a, of a group of people that is distinct and different, but a part of our church is Asian background believers. We would love to have an Asian background believer on our elder board. And so for five years, Bob, you remember from your time on the board, we had this conversation five years ago saying, who can we get? And we'd talk to those people and we'd include them in our eldership processes and we've had them go through our eldership courses with us. And so far, it just hasn't worked out because of usually travel schedules and work schedules. But we're sensitive to that and we're desiring of that. We would love to see the church leadership and our elder board in particular represent the demographics of our community. Our community is by far 10 times larger than any other group, a Caucasian community. If you look at the six largest communities around where we are right now, and it is about 5.6% Asian background, and it is about 23 to 2.5% African-American background, and then there's a whole lot of other things in there as well that are really, really small in the, in the percentages. That's just where we're at right now. And so to a great extent, our church is a more reflecting of the Jerusalem church than it is the Antioch church right now. And a lot of that has to do with the demographics that are around us in our community. Now, will God change that at some point in the future? Will it become more of a melting pot here regionally than what we see right now in West County in this area, Baldwin, Ellisville, De Pere, Town and Country, all these spaces, Wildwood, Eureka, all that? Maybe, I don't know. And if he does, we've gotta be welcoming of it. We've gotta be embracing of it. In fact, when you see people that look differently than you or have different backgrounds than you at church, I hope you are welcoming and reach out to them and make an extra effort to make them feel welcome in case they don't feel welcome. Because they feel like maybe this is a minority for me, because that's the culture and the demographic that we happen to be in geographically right now. But I hope you will go across the aisle. I hope you will go reach out and, and be welcoming of people, because we see both true in the church. All right, I probably spent too much time on that, but I think it's an important point. We value diversity in the kingdom, but we don't make it our, our idol or a virtue in and of itself. It's something where when God provides it, we welcome it and embrace it no matter where it comes from. That's number one, the kingdom is for everyone. Number two, 
The kingdom has different roles. The kingdom has different roles. God tells the leaders of the church in Antioch to appoint Saul and Barnabas for a special work, something unique for them to do. Not everyone in that church was called to go be a missionary. And not everyone in this church is called to go be a missionary. Now, I asked this question of the early service, and I was very disappointed in their answer. So now I'm going to ask you. Does anyone remember that old song? Be a missionary every day. Tell the world that Jesus. Do you remember it? Jeff, I love you, man. I mean, I did before, but now even more. Yes, thank you. Thank you. I could not believe how few people knew that song. And maybe it's just me, but I grew up singing that all sorts of different places. The idea that everybody's supposed to be a missionary. We're all supposed to be missionaries. Well, in a sense, of course, that is true. We're supposed to share our faith. But in the sense of we're all supposed to be apostolic missionaries that go as messengers to other communities. No, that is a specific role that God calls some people to. And it's a role that God called Saul and Barnabas to. But God has a role for you as well. God has a role for you as well. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul says a spiritual gift is given to each of us so we can help each other. Peter says in 1 Peter 4, God has given each of you a gift from his great variety of spiritual gifts. Use them well to serve one another. So if you're a follower of Jesus, you have a role in the kingdom. You have a role in the body of Christ in the church. You have an area that God wants you to serve. I wonder if you know what that is and if you're currently engaged in that. Because Saul and Barnabas had one role, but you have another role, I guarantee. Whether you know what that is at this point or not, there's an aspect of the kingdom God wants you involved in that specifically gifted you for. Paul goes on to say in 1 Corinthians 12, it is the one and only spirit who distributes all these gifts. He alone decides which gift each person should have. The human body has many parts, but the many parts make up one whole body. Um, so it is with the body of Christ. If the whole body were an eye, how would you hear? Or if your whole body were an ear, how would you smell anything? But our bodies have many parts, and God has put each part just where he wants it. All of you together are Christ's body, and each of you is a part of it. So Saul and Barnabas were called out for this special work, but the Bible teaches that God's got work for you to do as well. And so what role are you playing in his kingdom? What work are you doing? It might take some exploration and some experimentation where you try doing something and serving in some way, and maybe it doesn't work out for you the first time. There are certain things in this church that other people are gifted at doing, and I am not gifted at doing. And when I try to do that thing, it does not work out well for me. There are areas God has gifted me and areas where he clearly has not. And so we need people to serve in those areas that I am not gifted in and that others are not gifted in. And so there are probably some of you right here in this room right now or watching online right now who are going to be gifted at something like working with kids. Uh, nursery is not my calling. Um, and I don't just say that selfishly. I'm just not good at that kind of stuff. I'm not good at preschool and nursery stuff. I could maybe do it for a day. But on a regular basis, I'm not good at that. There are probably some people here who that is an area that God has specially gifted you in with, a let's say, the spiritual gift of mercy and helping to be in there and working with the kids. And you don't even know it yet because you've never tried it. So have you figured out what is your role in the kingdom? What is your role in the body of Christ? How has God gifted you? And are you playing a part in that? In the expansion of his kingdom by fulfilling your role. Saul and Barnabas learned theirs, went out, did it. What is yours? Because God has it for every one of you. One of the things I wanted to communicate this morning is that 
we as church leaders and as pastors and elders see there being three main things that everyone who's a part of the body of Christ should at least be involved in. There's more to it than this, but there's three main things as it relates to your relationship with the church. Number one, we think everyone who's a part of any local church should regularly be a part of those churches' worship gatherings. It's important for us to gather together and to make that a priority in our life to where we may even sacrifice other things to make sure we are gathering to worship our God together. It's encouraging, it's edifying, it lifts us up, it's praising God together. This is a biblical mandate. Hebrews 10 tells us that we're not to forsake gathering together. And as a part of that, we're supposed to encourage each other to love and good works. And so gathering together, that's a priority for us. That's the first thing. And congratulations, all of you are here. Check. Just kidding, it's not a checkbox thing, but it is an important thing. Number two, Everyone who's a part of the local body of Christ needs to be in some kind of community because there are a whole bunch of one another's in scripture. I did a message on this a few months ago. It's one of my favorite messages ever to give. It was during the Christmas series about all the one another's in scripture. There are all these things that God says as a part of the family of God, you're supposed to do this for each other, but that doesn't happen at the corporate worship gathering. That happens as we're in each other's lives. And so there's got to be some rhythm, some consistency where you're getting to know a group of people, either in a small group or a Sunday morning group or something like that, so that you are in community together. It's not enough to be a part of the weekly worship gathering, although that should be a priority. You also need to be in some kind of community where you're living out the one another's together. And the third thing that we think every Christian ought to be doing is serving in some way. Because God has given you a role and gifting to serve. And if you're not using that, if you're only doing one or two of these things and you're not serving, you are missing out on the full picture of what God wants for you spiritually. In fact, what I have seen personally is that most spiritual growth happens not from Bible study, but from serving. Bible study is great, but unless you put that into action, it doesn't actually do a lot of good for you. It may give you some right thinking, but Jesus says, if you love me, learn my commandments obey my commandments. If you love me, you'll take action. And so we see those three things as priorities, the worship gathering, being in a community, and serving regularly. So the kingdom has different roles. What is your role in the kingdom? The third thing we see is that the kingdom has ambassadors. This is in verses two and three. Saul and Barnabas, of course, are sent out to leave for that special work that they have. And they go to Seleucia, and then they go to the island of Cyprus, and they start in Salamis, and they work their way in through every town, preaching the word of God until they get to Paphos. God didn't intend for every believer to be that kind of international ambassador. That may not be God's calling on your life. It it may be, I don't know. Be open to it if it is, because if it is, it's nothing to be scared of. He'll equip you for it and it'll be a wonderful, blessed life. But it's not everyone's calling. Some of us are called to be part of that team that sent. There's a whole big group of people back in Antioch that sent Saul and Barnabas out and commissioned them for that work. Both are necessary. The kingdom has ambassadors. You either need to be an ambassador or helping to send and support ambassadors. Now, the great news is we as a church, we do this together collectively. And so just last week, you heard from John and Jim and Barbara, who we commissioned to go to Kenya and be ambassadors for Jesus on our behalf. And they did a great work there. And that was on a short-term basis. We have lots of other people that do this on a long-term basis. We have 26 different missionaries that we support around the world. And so when you give to First Free Church, a portion of what you give is then distributed to all those different places. Did you know that? When you give to First Free Church, you are supporting God's work and God's ambassadors in dozens of places around the world. Not to mention the partners that we have that aren't just one missionary, but organizations that we support. 
And so together, we are collectively sending and supporting ambassadors, even if that is not the work that God has specifically called us to. Now this summer, by the way, some of those ambassadors are gonna be back with us and you'll get chances to interact with them and, and we'll announce when those times are happening you can meet with them and hear their stories. The kingdom has ambassadors. The kingdom is for everyone. The kingdom has different roles. And next, the kingdom has a message. From verses five through seven, the kingdom has a message. It's become kind of common in Christian circles today to think that the message isn't really the priority. It's doing good that's the priority. Do good, be good. Don't worry so much about the message. Now, we have lots of examples of Saul and Barnabas doing good in their work and performing miracles and helping people and serving in lots of different ways. We have so many examples of all the good they did. But here in Acts 13, what Luke tells us is they went through every town and they preached the word of God. It was the message that was the priority. What the enemy would like to do is convince followers of Jesus that the message isn't a priority. What's a priority is to be loving and good and to do good things for other people and to be seen as a good person and just to be tolerant and accepting of everything. And if you do that, that's what you need to do as a result of your faith in Jesus. But that is a lie. It's not all about doing good and being good. There is a message, which is the reason that we do good in this world. And we cannot forget about the message. If, we, if we're all about just loving and doing good and being good, but divorce that from the message, that's actually a, a fairly self-serving religiosity that doesn't result in true life change and heart change because it's just about behavior modification. It's temporary. It doesn't have any long-term good benefits to it or effect. It doesn't have any spiritual effect to it if it's divorced from the message of the good news about Jesus. The enemy loves that sort of thing. The enemy would love for Christians to just think it's just about being a good person. That's all it is. But if it doesn't have the message of the gospel, then it is not doing much good at all. We had a family ministries retreat last week where we talked about the difference between behavior modification and heart transformation. And a lot of what we try to do in Christian circles is focus on behavior modification. How can I get you to do the right things, say the right things, not do the wrong things, not say the wrong things, and make you look like a good person? But we can't start there. It's gotta be all about heart transformation. That's what we care about in our children's ministry here. Are these kids getting introduced to Jesus and the message about Jesus? And honestly, the message that there's no amount of good that we can do that will be good enough. That's not the point. The point is Jesus did all the good for us. And it's faith and belief in him that transforms our life and changes us from the inside out so that we can be different people. We live well and do good things because of what he's done for us, not to gain his acceptance for us. So you cannot forget about the message. I mentioned the enemy and what the enemy would like to do among Christians is to distract us from the message of the gospel and get us to think primarily about just doing good and being good because the enemy would absolutely, is it totally fine with you following Jesus and loving Jesus? That's fine. You can love Jesus. You can have Jesus on your wall. You can have a Bible as long as you don't care much about the message and definitely don't share it with other people. It's the teaching that he doesn't want you to share. You can do all the good stuff, but don't share the message. That is a strategy of the enemy. And that brings us to our next point, number five, the kingdom has enemies. The kingdom has enemies, verses six through eight. It's in that last community on the island of Cyprus, Paphos, where Saul and Barnabas encounter this man named Bar-Jesus, also known as Elymas. Elymas means magician or sorcerer. This is a Jewish man who is very influential with the governor. His name is Sergius Paulus. 
And Sergius, the Bible tells us, is intelligent, wants to know more about the good news, wants to know more about the teaching of Saul and Barnabas. But Elymas is trying to keep him from understanding that, and he's trying to distract him from that, keep him from believing the message. Why? Because the kingdom has enemies who do not want people to hear the teaching about Jesus. It looks different in different parts of the world. It looks different in different times as well. We see some things in this example in Acts that we may not see today, but maybe seen in another part of the world. It, it, the, the devil operates differently in different areas based on what's effective in that area. It's very strategic. But the kingdom has enemies that are specifically working in, in strategic ways to keep pe- people from following and believing in Jesus, truly following Jesus. Now, in our part of the world, in Western cultures, this has often taken the place of agnosticism or atheism or anti-spirituality. In fact, because the default state of people is to be a part of the kingdom of the devil, he's perfectly happy with them just believing that he doesn't exist. It's totally fine for them to think the demons don't exist, the devil doesn't exist, there's nothing spiritual, this world is all it is, it's just materialism, and and as long as you believe that, because your default state is part of his kingdom anyway, he's perfectly happy with that. He would love for you to believe he doesn't exist, because that means you believe God doesn't exist. And so he's fine with that. Now, in other parts of the world, oftentimes this takes the form of some kind of false spirituality. False religion, false beliefs, believing in other spirits and animism and, and uh, paganism and pantheism and all sorts of things. And that has taken a, a bigger root in our culture as well. That seems to be growing these days. People, people believe in all sorts of different religions and sometimes even adding Jesus to that. And so you'll get Jesus, but I also am into Hinduism and Buddhism and other things. And I add all these things together and hopefully between that conglomerate, I'm good enough. And Satan is perfectly happy with that. That's a strategy for him. The Bible tells us that he is a smart individual. 1 Peter 5 says, stay alert. Watch out for your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Stand firm against him and be strong in your faith. Remember that your family of believers all over the world is going through the same kind of suffering that you are. In 2 Corinthians, Paul says, if the good news we preach is hidden behind a veil and is hidden only from people who are perishing, Satan, who is the God of this world, The God of this world has blinded the minds of those who don't believe. Satan has blinded the minds of those who don't believe. They are unable to see the glorious light of the good news. They don't understand this message about the glory of Christ, who is the exact likeness of God. What is he saying? When people don't believe in God, Satan gives them lots more reasons not to believe, and he twists the truth, and he changes it to make them think, well, you can take Jesus and this and these other things and add them together, and as long as you're a good person, that's what matters as long as you're tolerant and as long as you're loving, as long as you don't think about your sinfulness, as long as you don't think about the justice that's required for a just God, that he can't be just unless he punishes sin, as long as you don't think about the fact that there's nothing you can do to repay for your sin because you don't have a time machine, you can't go back and erase what's done, what's done is done. As long as you don't think about the fact that Jesus died to pay the sacrifice for your sins because you can't do anything good on your own and it's only by letting him live through you and flow through you and his grace flow through you to others that you can do any real good in this world with true motives, with pure motives. As long as you don't think about that, he's perfectly happy to twist the truth about Jesus because he's cunning, he's strategic and he knows how to work in this world to keep people a part of his kingdom. Jesus, the enemy would love you to believe, was just a good person, just a prophet, along with a lot of other good people. There was nothing special about him. And he's perfectly happy and content to have you believe in Jesus, but not believe that it's only faith in Jesus that will save you. It's a strategy the devil uses. 
One of the greatest examples of this from the last century was a book called The Screwtape Letters. Now, have any of you read The Screwtape Letters here? I know there'll be some people in the front row here. Um, Screwtape Letters, C.S. Lewis, fantastic book, all about demonic activity in the world and what might that look like in our context that might differ from what we see in the book of Acts. And in some ways, there's similarities. But it's helping us to understand how there is a battle going on right now around us and there are evil forces that are at work that we are really fighting against. We don't fight against flesh and blood, Paul says, but rulers and principalities. And there are demonic forces at work in this world, but we don't always see them. It's kind of like God's kingdom, how it might be hidden, but it's there around you. The best example I've seen of this in this century is the movie Nefarious. Have any of you seen the movie Nefarious? Uh, unfortunately, it got, it got listed as a horror movie. It's not a horror movie. It's a psychological thriller. And it is by far the best depiction of modern day demonic activity I've ever seen. Um, it's it's fascinating. It's a thrilling movie. It, it is not one for kids necessarily. It, should, it, was, it was rated R. It shouldn't be rated R. It's PG-13 is technically what it is. But that is the best example. If you want to see how might demons be strategizing today, how might they be possessing people today? How might they be influencing in the world? I don't love everything about the movie, but it is the best depiction uh, after screw tape letters of that. I encourage you to check it out if you want to. Satan is at work in the world. The kingdom has enemies. Number six, the kingdom has a helper. This is the good news. The kingdom has enemies, but the kingdom also has a helper. Verses nine and 10 show us what happens when Elymas tries to keep Sergius from believing the Holy Spirit shows up. The Holy Spirit inspires the words of Saul. And Luke wants us to know this. It wasn't just Saul's words. It's the spirit who filled Saul. And then he spoke and he proclaimed this curse on Elymas. He called him a son of the devil. So Elymas was being influenced by Satan. This is demonic activity at work. He's a son of the devil. And Saul gives him this curse because he was perverting the true ways of the Lord, which is interesting to me. He wasn't outright rejecting any of the teachings from God. He was perverting them, twisting them into something they weren't supposed to be. It's a common tactic of the devil. And so God brings immediate judgment on him. It's a judgment for Elymas for participating with the devil and trying to keep Sergius from believing and for twisting God's words to do that. And so he is suddenly struck with blindness and he has to grope around for where he should go and has to be asked, begging, begging people to show him where to go. He wasn't faking it. This powerful, strong, influential sorcerer. No, no, he wasn't faking this weakness. This made him look terrible. This was God's work and no one could ignore it. Now, as I said earlier, the book of Acts is a book of description not prescription. So if you are trying to share the gospel with someone and find that there is someone that's constantly interrupting, you might not be able to expect they will suddenly become blind. It doesn't always work that way. This is a unique circumstance. Paphos was an unreached community, never hearing the gospel before. Saul and Barnabas bringing it for the first time to this place. And we see that often throughout scripture. The gospel comes with signs and wonders and miracles to confirm the message. But that doesn't necessarily continue in every community forever. In fact, it Seems to not. The author of Hebrews talks about how when the gospel came to you, it came with signs and wonders and miracles. So keep believing that message based on what happened when it first came to you. He doesn't say, look around you, it's happening now. So the implication is we can't always expect that in this world. There's an element of faith that is required that God is not going to constantly feed with miracles and signs and wonders. It was Jesus that said to Thomas, you believe because you've seen. Blessed are those who don't see but will believe. So there's an element of faith there and a blessing for those of us that haven't experienced things that give us that visible proof, even though some people do. 
But there is a blessing there that Jesus says for those that don't see, but still believe and have that faith. Now, just to say that the spirit isn't necessarily gonna blind someone today um, for, for you when you're trying to share the gospel doesn't mean the spirit is not involved with you. The spirit is very involved with you. The Bible says the spirit is our comforter. The spirit is our guide into the truth. The spirit is the one that distributes the gifts. We read that earlier in, in 1 Corinthians. It's the Holy Spirit that prays for us and intercedes when we are weak and we don't know what to pray. The Spirit is how we can exhibit the fruit of the Spirit in this world and live a completely different life. It's a close walk with the Spirit that results in wise decisions and godly living in your life. And so the Holy Spirit's very involved in our lives, even if it doesn't always look like this instance where it was very visible in the book of Acts. So the kingdom is for everyone. The kingdom has different roles. The kingdom has ambassadors. The kingdom has a message. The kingdom has enemies. The kingdom has a helper. And finally, the kingdom will be victorious. The kingdom will be victorious. Look at verses 10 through 12. In verse 12, we see that Governor Sergius believes after this incredible thing happens where his close influential advisor, Elymas, becomes blind. But I want you to pay special attention in verse 12. Why does Sergius believe? Is it because he's scared? Is it because he's witnessed something supernatural? No, it's because he's astonished at the teaching about the Lord. It was the message. Yes, there was this incredible sign that confirmed the validity of the message. Yes, there was this miracle that proved that Elymas didn't know what he was talking about. But that's not what saved Sergius. It was the teaching. It was the message. And don't miss the significance of this, that the sign was a confirmation confirmation of the message, not a replacement for it. And today there are a lot of people that long for signs and look for signs and even find false prophets that deliver what appear to be signs and wonders. And that becomes elevated as an idol. You want to know why we don't see it all over the place? I think it's because in many cases we would worship the sign and the wonder and the miracle more than the message. And it's not about the sign or the wonder or the miracle. It's the message that has the power to save. Now, I don't know exactly what they told him. What was the teaching about the Lord? Probably something like this. There's a God of the universe that created everything that we see and he created all the things around you. But because humans are, were rebellious and rebelled against God and now all of us are born in sin and we're all naturally sinful and, and Sergius, who the Bible says is an intelligent man, is listening to this and thinking, yeah, that checks out. Yeah, there's a lot of sinful people around here. Yeah, and I'm, oh, yeah, I'm naturally not a very good person myself. And then God, who's perfectly just, he has to punish sin, but there's no way that any person can make up for their sin. They can't get in a time machine and change it. There's nothing they can do to override it. What's done is done. They've sinned. They now can't be a part of God's family because he's holy and perfect and just. How does a holy and perfect and just God allow those people who he loves back into his family when they can't do that because of what they've done and they can't change it? Well, here's how he did it. It's like this incredible puzzle that the intelligent Sergius is trying to solve with them. And they say he sent he, he took a human nature and added it to his divine nature. He came down and lived as one of us, fully divine, fully human, died as a perfect human, as a sacrifice to pay for what we couldn't pay for so that all of our sins get put on him as a perfect sacrifice, making that payment so we can now be with God. And I'm sure they explained a lot more than that. And Sergius, the intelligent man, probably listens to all that and goes, what an amazing solution. It's genius. And he believes, not because of the sign, but because of the teaching about the Lord. I wanna close with two questions for you. Two simple questions. The first one is for people that may not actually be a part of the kingdom of God right now. Maybe you thought you were, maybe you'd like to be, but, but maybe you are trying to rely on some of the good things that you do to help you get in there. 
what I wanna tell you is this. If entrance into God's family and God's kingdom involves Jesus plus anything you do, then Jesus wasn't enough, was it? When we try to add anything to Jesus' payment for our sins, what we're really doing is saying, Jesus' payment took care of 95% of the debt, and I need to add a little bit more to the pot to make this good. And that means we're not truly trusting in Jesus. And so all you have to do is come before God, either right now or when we do communion in a minute or later after the service or after you get more questions answered, whatever it is, and say, God, I know that I'm a sinner. I know I'm a sinful person. I know I cannot do anything to make that up to you but I ask for you to apply Jesus' payment to my account because I wanna be a part of your kingdom. I wanna be a part of your family. And the Bible says that when you do that, he transforms you on the inside, makes you a new person, not perfect, not sinless, but getting better and with the power of the Holy Spirit to then guide you through your life as a part of his family and his kingdom. You just confess your sins to him, you ask him to save you and you see what he will do in your life. And then you get close to people who can help you learn and grow and know more about what all of that means. Now, for a lot of you, you've, you've done that. Maybe you did that a long time ago. So here's my question for you. Are you sensitive and aware to what is happening in God's expansion of the kingdom around you? And are you involved? Do you see it? Is it hidden like one of those animals in the picture where all the busyness of life has crowded out what God is trying to do through you, how he has re-extended this offer to you to be a part of his kingdom work and what he's doing? And have you just been pushing it aside because it's just such a small piece of the picture of your life for you right now? Maybe it's time to spend some time in prayer as we get ready for communion, the Lord's Supper. Spend some time and ask him, Lord, is there an area of my life that you've been trying to get a hold of me on? an area where I've been ignoring your kingdom, an area where I haven't been standing firm against the enemy, an area where you want me to be serving and have a role within your kingdom that I haven't been obedient to, I haven't been looking for. Make sure you are not just a part of God's kingdom, but an active participant because he has specifically gifted you for that purpose. Let's all bow our heads and pray and prepare our hearts to remember the sacrifice that Jesus made for us. Lord Jesus, we thank you for what you did in dying on the cross so that we can be freed from sin, so that we can have a new life in you and live differently in a hope that we could never have otherwise, Lord. We recognize right now that you are doing a work in the world in growing and expanding your kingdom and that we're a part of it, but God, so often we forget about it and, and we just we neglect it in our lives. Lord, my prayer is that today would be a wake-up call for us, that we would be more in tune to what you're doing in the world and especially to the role you want us to play in it. You say that we are hands and feet in this world. Lord, help us to do that. Do that at church, do that at home with our families, to do that at work, to do that wherever we are throughout the week, Lord, that we wouldn't just be Sunday Christians, but all Monday through Saturday too, we would be out there representing and, and a conduit for you to expand and build your kingdom in this world. In your name we pray, amen. Amen. Well, now we have the privilege of partaking in the Lord's Supper or communion, and I just want to give us a few logistics beforehand. As the trays are passed, if you're a follower of Jesus, please take a stack of two cups. And if you're not a follower, feel free to pass that tray along. The bottom cup has the bread, and the top cup has the juice, and there are also gluten-free wafers in the center of each tray if you need those. And if you would just hang on to those elements for a moment until everyone is served, and then we will take communion together. We know during this time of communion, we remember how Jesus invited each of us into the kingdom of God, and also just what it cost for him to make that way for us to enter in. We remember that we were lost in our sin. We were far from God. 
In fact, more than that, the Bible tells us in Ephesians 2 that we were dead in our sins. And our sin deserved a penalty that we could never repay. That's the bad news. We also remember the good news of the gospel message. We remember that God loved us so much that he gave his one and only son. While we were still sinners, Christ came for us, for everyone who would believe. Now our sin cost Jesus. His body was broken, which we remember by the bread, and his blood was shed, which we remember with the juice. And ultimately, our sin cost Jesus his life. But you know, scripture tells us in Hebrews that it was for the joy set before him that Jesus endured the cross. He knew this was the way, that his sacrifice would rescue us from our sin. And he also knew that he wouldn't stay dead, but that he would rise again and offer us our own resurrection, that anyone who trusts in Jesus as Savior is welcomed in to the kingdom of God. So let's take a couple of moments right now as a trays are passed of, of silent and somber reflection on what our sin cost. And let's take a moment of repentance. But let's also take some time of joyful remembrance of just how much God loves us. And let's look forward to eternity with Jesus. And that's not just an out there someday thing. That starts as soon as you accept Jesus as your savior, you now have eternity with him. Let's think on those things right now.
Looks like everyone's been served. Scripture tells us in 1 Corinthians 11 that on the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and after breaking it, after giving thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this every time you drink of it in remembrance of me. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your great love for us. We thank you for the truth of the gospel message that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. That you didn't just leave us alone and, and unable to pay for our sins, but you sent your son to pay for our sins. And that anyone who believes in him is now welcomed into the kingdom of God. Help us to remember that this week. Help us to share that this week. Help us to never lose the wonder of that truth. And if there's anyone here who has not yet accepted that truth, Lord, I just pray that you would pierce their heart and help them to understand more about Jesus. Father God, we thank you for your great love and we thank you for Jesus in his name. Amen.